So uh, now we're speaking with Stephen Gowans, who is visiting Hamilton today and yesterday uh, to present the book Washington's Long War on Syria, which launched to a crowd uh, yesterday at New Vision United Church. Must have been 55 people there. Very respectable figure for a Hamilton book launch, as I might have said earlier, as well as today at McMaster, a second event, which um, took place in room 313 at the Student Center. Great attendance, great turnout, great questions, uh, lots of excitement on both days. So, uh, Stephen, thanks very much for gracing Hamilton with your presence there. Well, thank you for inviting me. One of the things that makes your work unique when I think about other works is that it looks at the three major forces that are contending the political direction of that country. And it provides a sort of framework because you, you outline, number one, the Arab socialism, uh, Ba'ath socialism, uh, second, political Islam, and third, U.S. imperialism. And that framework shapes the whole book as you look at those forces and their local and international connections. Syria, in some ways, would be seen as an epicenter or a case study, an example of some of these forces clashing. Certainly, the introductory sections of the book, they look at the nature of the Arab nationalist government in Syria, and you explore why its interests are considered antithetical or in opposition to that of Washington. I guess one of the things I'd like to ask you about the book in that regard is, how far can we go to find evidence and examples of the way in which Syrian economic policy or political policy is not in alignment with Washington? Yeah. And to introduce my answer to that question, I should emphasize that this book is not about Syria so much as it's about U.S. foreign policy. It simply uses the conflict in Syria as an example of the way in which U.S. foreign policy is implemented and its examination not of events so much as process, the process of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and so it also looks at Iraq. It looks like at uh, Libya. It also looks at Iran. So the concern is with U.S. foreign policy, how it originates, uh, what its goals are, who's behind it, and how it's played out in these countries. Um, and U.S. foreign policy is largely driven by the interests of the most influential sector of U.S. society, which is corporate America. I think that's a pretty or non-controversial point, um, and especially with the uh, Trump administration, which is filled with billionaires. But, uh, I mean, there are various mechanisms that uh, the business class in the United States uses to influence foreign policy. Is beyond simply placing billionaires or representatives of business within significant roles or significant posts in the state. I mean, business is the uh, lobbyist par excellence, for example. Um, the media, which set the agenda, the public policy agenda, or discussion about public policy as owned by business. I mean, business influence is just pervasive throughout U.S. society, and it's seen in U.S. foreign policy. So um, you might expect them that countries which have values or approaches to their economy which are hostile to the profit-making interests of this very significant part of the U.S. society might be countries that are targeted for regime change. So if we look at a country like Syria, we discover that it um, has favored public ownership of the commanding heights of the economy. It has favored 
a significant role for the state in the guidance of the economy. It's favored subsidies to local businesses. It's concerned not with facilitating profit-making of U.S. corporations. It's concerned with uplifting the material lives of Syrians. And in doing so, by guiding the development of the economy so that it is benefits Syrians and benefits at the expense of the profit-making interests of the United States. Now, some people question whether the Syrian government is socialist, if we can use that word, socialist, and suggest that it's neoliberal. But they may think it's neoliberal. They may think it's not socialist, but that's not the view of the U.S. government. And that's important in explaining U.S. foreign policy. What does the U.S. government think about the economic arrangement of Syria? Well, you can look at U.S. government documents. You can look at the U.S. State Department country study on Syria, for example, and see the Syrian economy described as socialist. Um, the United States uh, or U.S. officials used to brand um, the preceding president, Hafez al-Assad, the father of Bashar, as an Arab communist. He wasn't a communist, but he was viewed as a communist because his policies were seen as equal in effect to those that communists would implement. Um, other U.S. policy documents complain openly about uh, Bashar al-Assad's failure to integrate the Syrian economy into the global economic order led by the United States, which is another way of saying, well, in fact, I do believe they say the problem with Syria is that there are a bunch of ideologues who are still committed to the socialist values of the Ba'ath Arab Socialist Party, which is the ruling party. Um, so it's very unquestionably and unmistakably the case that Washington views the Syrian economy as socialist, as it viewed the Iraqi economy under Saddam as socialist and denounced it as socialist. It was socialist in the sense that it was publicly organized to a large extent, uh, and it was guided by state planning. Now, you can have debates about what socialism is, but the significant point here is from the U.S. policy pers or perspective, Syrian economy, the Iraqi economy, the Libyan economy, even the Iranian economy would be labeled socialist. Yes, and you had pointed out in your lecture about the book that if Arab nationalist uh, ideology or Iran's um, ideology were taken to their fullest extent employed in the Arab or Muslim world, it could cut off large sections of that world from U.S. capital and from that system, which, you know, the idea of Arab independence, for example, in, in Arab socialism or Arab nationalism, the idea of Arab unity and having their own productive base and trade relations could remove a lot of that economic area from the mechanisms, the global mechanisms by which U.S. capital operates. And that would be seen, that whole ideology would be uh, unfavorably viewed in, in Washington and in Wall Street. Now, for those who are just tuning in, we're speaking with Stephen Gowans, who's been launching his book, Washington's Long War on Syria, here in Hamilton. And yeah, on the note of that political discord, uh, we have, of course, in 2011, the this uprising, uh, which is the center of so much discussion. And as you, you've been characterizing in your book as a clash between these ideologies, these contending systems, and the destiny of Syria and much of the Arab world. Um, now, it's been understood in terms of popular discussion up until recently that there had been this Syrian revolution and had been part of the Arab Spring, um, whereas you've been describing um, a sort of continued battle between sectarian elements in Syria versus the government. So in the 2011 demonstrations, 
can you tell us about your understanding of how that unfolded and how it deviates from, I guess, the, the corporate media narrative? Yeah. Um, well, I think if you're going to look at a conflict, it's, it's important to look at surrounding events and history. Um, the U.S. media and kind of fosters an understanding about Syria that says that history began in 2011, and anything that happened before that is completely irrelevant. But what did happen before 2011? What did happen was a decades-long civil war between Islamists and the secular government. Um, various specialists in Syria have described this as uh, a death feud, a death feud with the, the Islamists vowing uh, war to the death uh, until Ba'ath Arab socialism is exterminated in Syria. So, you know, if you look at that background and then ask what's happened since 2011, it's difficult to see the 2011 uprising as one that was inspired by liberal democratic goals for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence that that was the basis of the uprising, not a shred of evidence. People simply repeat that this is the case because they've heard everyone else say that this is the case, but they are never able to adduce the slightest bit of evidence, and it all flies in the face of the history of Syria flies in the face of the U.S. government analysis of Syria. If you read U.S. government analysis of Syria, they always talk about how the Islamists were the internal or the major internal opposition to the secular Arab nationalist government. But, you know, you can go back to the, the so-called origins of the uprising, which was about mid-March 2011, and you can read what it was that mainstream U.S. newspapers were reporting on what was going on on the street, which is what I did. I went back to uh, the New York Times in time for the months of January, February, March, and April of 2011. And what I discovered was that um, those media sources were very perplexed about Syria. They're perplexed because at the time there was mass upheaval across the Arab world, and often in place, places where we don't hear about the Arab Spring, such as Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. Uh, but all was quiet in Syria, and the New York Times and Time magazine were very perplexed about this, so they sent reporters off to Syria to find out why all was quiet. And what the New York Times and Time reported was that um, Syrians regarded their president as popular, that even critics conceded that Assad was popular, that he had, and this is a Time magazine phrase, endeared himself to the population. Um, there had been attempts to organize demonstrations against the government, and they had fizzled. And the uprising occurred, or what we believe, or, or we mark the uprising from about mid-March 2011 when riots erupted in the city of Dara. And these riots were violent riots um, that involved armed people, that involved the burning of buildings, that involved the burning of vehicles. And... The New York Times at the time reported the government officials acknowledged that the uprising was a violent uprising and that some of the protesters were armed. Well, the subsequent narrative or mythology about the origin of the uprising is that it was largely peaceful. That's the way it was described, say, about two years ago. Now it's simply being described as peaceful. But that's not the way it was described by major media, U.S. media at the time. Um, so, you know, if you look at the history of 
Syria, and you look at what newspapers, mainstream newspapers, were reporting in March 2011, you see indication after indication that this uprising was simply a continuation of the longstanding Islamist versus secularist war uh, that had been going on for decades in Syria. And there are all kinds of other indications that this was simply um, a resurrection of the Islamist insurgency against the Syrian government had nothing whatever to do with the quest for democracy. Um, We might point out that in response to the uprising that the Syrian government almost immediately amended the constitution to allow for multi-party or multiple candidates within the presidential election. You look at Syria's political arrangement right now, it very closely resembles the paradigm of multi-party representative democracy favored in the West, more so than virtually any other Arab country, and certainly more so than the principal Arab allies of the United States, which are uniformly um, royal and military dictatorships. And yet this is where so much regime change effort is concentrated, on Syria, as if Syria is the problem uh, in the Arab world, whereas it's the U.S. allies that are in fact theocratic monarchies, uh, absolute monarchies, you know, with, written by God to to rule, and somehow Syria is the problem, and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and others are going to liberate and create democracy, even though they don't do that at home. It's absurd to believe, but you can see how the U.S. media was running cover for the violent uh, uprising that occurred um, in the way that they used words. I remember reading about armed activists. You might remember that. I was reading about armed activists in Syria protesting. Now, you know, if if I took a, a rocket launcher and was shooting a police station with it in Canada, the Hamilton Spectator would not call me an armed activist activist. They would call me a terrorist, probably. Yes, indeed. They would call you a terrorist. And and the narrative, though, I should point out, the media narrative changes about the time that Obama demands that Assad step down. Because before that, we have reporting that kind of contradicts the reporting that develops afterwards. And then maybe you can attribute that to the fact that media often simply rehash or simply pass along what it is that people in power say. They report what the president says or what the, the, the uh, secretary of state says or the head of the Pentagon. Um, but prior to that, when there is this genuine inquiry to find out why it was that there was no political distemper in Syria, we see um, media reporting that certainly conflicts with the understanding that is subsequently developed. Well, if it was a revolution for liberal democracy, as has been alleged with so little evidence for so long— You look at the changes to the Syrian constitution, because the government amended its constitution and made changes to bring in a more multi-party type system, as you say. So if that was true, what can we see in the reaction of anti-government people when the Syrian government changed its constitution? Were they pleased by it? Were they encouraged to have more constitutional changes? How did it affect them? Right, and they immediately rejected it. Their Western supporters immediately rejected it without explaining why. Right. I guess it wasn't enough. It wasn't democratic enough. I mean, Saudi Arabia, they're okay with and all these other monarchies. But if Syria amends its constitution, becomes more multi-party, that's still not enough. It's still not enough to satisfy us for some reason. I mean, you know, it it really seems quite dishonest, you know, in in the the whole narrative on just about everything that's been happening. I should also explain that all of the the riots and the uprising that did occur were in Sunni areas and there was no uprising in areas dominated by um, religious minorities. So you, you didn't see uprisings within Christian uh, Alawi or uh, Druze areas. 
uh, which then invites the question, if this was an uprising for democracy, why is it that uh, Christians, Druze, and Alawi were not participating? Yes, and although there was this sectarian character to the insurgency, it, we we don't want to make the mistake of assuming that all Sunnis were against the government, because that doesn't seem to be the case if you look at the operation of the Syrian military and the government as it continues to function. And Absolutely. And people make this kind of this formal error of logic, this transpositional error. It's kind of like, you know, if all or most Americans speak English, it doesn't follow that most English-speaking people are American. Well, there's also this idea that, you know, most of the opponents are Sunni. It doesn't follow then that most Sunnis are opponents of the government, and that's the case. It appears to be that the majority of Sunnis within Syria support the government. The government seems to have broad support, something acknowledged very early on by U.S. media, also acknowledged as well by um, government, or not government, by uh, some polling that had been done by Western firms, which found uh, broad support for the Assad government. In fact, near the end of 2011, YouGov, a British polling firm, found that 55% of Syrians wanted the president to stay. In fact, if you look at the demands released by the early uh, protesters or demonstrators or rioters, and this was acknowledged by mainstream Western sources, there were no demands for the government to set, step down. The early demands were for an end to the security law, which is the Syrian equivalent to our War Measures Act, and that was almost immediately suspended. Another demand was the release of pris political prisoners. Well, who are political prisoners in Syria? Political prisoners are people who in the West would be called terrorists, and members of Islamist organizations who resort yeah. to violence to achieve political change. It's actually amazing how opportunistically opponents of the Syrian government have utilized the release of political prisoners because people on Twitter who complain about the Syrian government have said, well, first of all, Assad was bad because he did not release the political prisoners. And then when he did release the political prisoners, he said Assad is bad because he released those dangerous people and, and it hurt the Syrian revolution because now all these dangerous people are out there. Well, th that was the demand of the protest to release those people. So you, damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Uh, mm -hmm. in, in the eyes of anti-government critics, uh, there's just no way to win except to step down, of course, which is a demand always placed by the United States on Global South leaderships that they don't agree with. Uh, I guess, the, you know, in terms of political science and politics, I guess the last issue I wanted to go into was something where you talked about some theoretical issues in terms of the nature of democracy and totalitarianism. Because, you know, the crude word totalitarianism is applied to non-liberal governments that uh, are not favored in the West here. But you've made the argument essentially that all wartime societies are totalitarian, that um, supposedly liberal democratic political entities such as the United States or Canada uh, becomes uh, totalitarian or it becomes a war measures act type government when it, it perceives itself to be under threat. And of course, Syria is under more threat than perhaps Canada or the United States have ever been in. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's some people, many people like to suggest that totalitarianism is an ideological choice, that certain parties favor totalitarian control. That doesn't seem to be the case. For example, it's often argued that the, um, the revolution led by Lenin in Russia was totalitarian because uh, totalitarian measures were taken. But that revolution was led by someone who was trying to build some kind of disaggregated worker state, which was immediately implemented. And then it was discovered that given the circumstances in which Russia found itself at the time, it just didn't work. 
and that circumstances demanded this more strong central control. Well, whenever countries or governments are threatened internally and externally, they resort to totalitarian measures. That's as true of Syria as it is of the United States and Britain and Canada. Canada has resulted to to or has instituted totalitarian measures during the First World War, which is curious when you think about it. Was Canada threatened in the First World War? Canada was divided by a vast ocean but from, from the country that it declared war on. There was no way that Canada was going to be attacked by Germany. Was Canada really facing any kind of external threat? No. And yet, Canada adopted these totalitarian measures, which was control over the distribution of information. The cabinet effectively ruled as a dictatorship. The cabinet took control of the economy. All of these measures that you might have seen in the Soviet Union or that you might see in Syria were implemented in Canada in the First World War, were implemented in Canada in the Second World War, were implemented in the period immediately following the First World War in the so-called Red Scare when there was this fear that there was going to be a Bolshevik revolution in Canada. So when governments face external and internal threats, they assume very strong powers. If we look at Syria, people don't recognize the extent to which its government is under threat. Um, far, it faces a far greater threat than the United States has ever faced. Um, for example, the well, let's look at two of the threats. I mean, Syria has been threatened with nuclear annihilation on two occasions, one by the United States, one by Israel. Syria is always under threat of military intervention. In 2002, 2003 rather, um, the United States, and this is on the public record, is not widely recognized, but the United States had planned to intervene militarily in Syria after taking out the Iraqi government. Um, the Syrians weren't unaware of that. Uh, Israel, I mean, Syria is still officially at war with Israel. Israel occupies illegally Syrian territory in the Golan Heights. Um, the United States, which is what this book is about, the long war in Syria has been waging a long war in Syria. So the state has been under threat for decades and decades and decades. It's not surprising that it might invoke kind of the kinds of measures that Canada would evoke in times of war, a War Measures Act, to kind of deal with those kinds of um, th those um, threats. Uh, Domenico Lucerto, the Italian philosopher, points to the United States and says, look, what happened as a result of 9-11? What's 9-11? Some people, how many people were killed in, yes, an atrocious attack, but the threat against the United States is nowhere near the magnitude of the threat that Syria faces, and yet what did the United States do? It's taken all kinds of uh, severe measures. It's uh, very uh, vigorously cut back on civil liberties. It's just, it hasn't become totalitarian, but it certainly moved within the direction of being a police state or more of a police state than it was. So totalitarianism is a response or an adaptation to circumstances. It's not an ideological choice. Yes, one can see how frantic the United States becomes when it's not confronted with an existential threat, whereas Syria, of course, is confronted with such threats. And one can imagine what the U.S. response would be if there was an al-Qaeda uprising in the United States backed by a foreign great power. I mean, the response would be quite lethal. And they would, would they use air power against U.S. cities in which an al-Qaeda uprising was taking place? The answer, of course, is yes. 
they would. But the Syrian government is demonized for taking such action to defend itself against an uprising by people that the United States have labeled as sectarian fanatics in their own documents. So, of course, that is something you reveal in your book. And all of these issues are just some of the things discussed in Stephen Gowan's book, Washington's Long War on Syria, which is available through Baraka Books and is available through Stephen Gowan's book tour. So thanks, Stephen, for dropping by and giving us this information. I hope our listeners uh, are encouraged to get your book and we'll provide links to it. Uh, it's a great service that you've done to the whole world in talking about the ongoing uh, machinations of, of the U.S. empire there in, in the case of particularly of Syria. And um, well, we hope to, uh, to illuminate people's knowledge on that subject. So thanks again for coming by today. Thank you very much, Brendan.